does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready, here, ready, here, ready, here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now, where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host, who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. Bonnie D. in the house. Thank you, the voice of Ryan Treasure, Voice America Business. We are live on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Voice America. I never remember whether I said the future is this way or that way, so I just go this way. We're we're going into the future. I have such an interesting topic for you, and some of you might say, oh, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to listen. Oh, no. Lawyers, attorneys, I don't care if you love them, you leave them, you like them, you hate them, you use them, you don't. They're a fact of our culture, a fact of our civilization. And today we're talking about the future of attorneys and AI. Now, those of you who are regular viewers and listeners and followers know I've been doing a sub-series here on Technology Revolution for a couple of months, and it's going to continue focusing on the impact of AI on different careers, different industries, different parts of our culture, things like creativity, innovation, and even we did one on empathy recently. So today we're talking about that. Let me open with my usual monologue, and then I will have my guests tell you who they are. We've got quite a panel today. It's going to be interesting. So the title of the show is The Future of Attorneys and AI. What would my cousin Vinny say? And if somebody's saying, what? That was in 1992, became a, a really iconic classic movie, American comedy film with Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomei. I'm only mentioning them in Fred Gwynn's final film appearance about two young New Yorkers were put on trial for murder in Alabama and they didn't do it, but they couldn't afford a lawyer. So they called up the cousin of one of them, my cousin Vinny, Joe Pesci. He's brand new to the bar and he goes down to New York and it's an interesting story of how he clashes with the Southern genteel people in the courtroom and he's just a New Yorker. Hey, use. So you might've heard that. So now let me go into my new usual opening. I asked ChatGPT, what is the future of attorneys and AI? And I got the following answer. While AI has the potential to revolutionize the legal profession, it is unlikely to replace lawyers entirely. Just let that sink in. The legal profession requires not only technical expertise, but also a deep understanding of the law and human interaction to make judgments, interpret legal texts, and apply the law to individual cases. Then I said, tell me a little bit about, there's a brand new app called Co-Counsel for Attorneys. It's AI. It said in response, Overall, co-counsel is a valuable tool for attorneys who are looking to expand their professional networks, find co-counsel, and improve their efficiency and effectiveness as legal professionals. Okay, all good. Recently, we found out that the advanced version of ChatGPT, which is GPT-4, passed the bar exam. Oh my goodness. March 15th, 2023, big announcement in Reuters. Artificial intelligence can now outperform most law school graduates on the bar exam, the grueling two-day test aspiring attorneys must practice take to practice law in the United States. This is the upgraded version of ChatGPT released in recently, and it scored 297 on the bar exam. Nancy, is that a good score, 297? 
Is that a hot, hot shot? It score? changes. So, um, Lisa, I will let you um, say, because I, if you know, it, it changes the, just like SAT and, and all of that, it changes. And I took the bar exam in 2001. So I don't know. <laughs> well, I, Lisa, we'll get to you in a second, yeah. but I want to say that according to this news article, ChatGPT scored in the 90th percentile. Lisa, is that impressive? Very. Okay, good. That's what we want to know. One word, very. 90th percentile of actual test takers, and it's enough to be admitted to practice law in most states. And the experiment was run by two law professors and two employees of a legal technology company, Case Tech. So there you go. So I also asked ChatGPT, as I always do. We used to call it the buzz on the shows. Now I just said, send me a couple of fictional quotes about attorneys and AI and anything to do with AI. And I got the following quotes. One is from Flynn in Tron Legacy, 2010 sci-fi film. I am not a program. I am a living thinking entity that was trapped in your world. I don't do a good impersonation, Noah, so you'll have to forgive me. Then I have one from Sunny and iRobot, a 2004 sci-fi film. You're wondering why I brought you here. I'm sorry. This is from Samantha in her 2013. You're wondering why I brought you here. You're wondering why you exist. That goes to our whole AI thing. Now, this one is from Sunny in 2004. Don't be alarmed, Captain. This is only a machine. I'm not capable of harming humans. Oh, my. We'll leave those on the table. Raise your hand and wave when I call your name. Nancy Elshick is back. You were with me last week, Nancy, and you brought me a wonderful panel last week and same today. Lisa Patterson, new to the show. Lisa, welcome. Can't wait to get to know you. Phil Siegel, Phil wave hello. There you are. And Noah Fiedler, hello, Noah. Noah, move to your right just a tiny bit. There we go. We're adjust. No, no, you're right. You're right. The other way. There we go. We're adjusting Noah against his background, and anybody watching will know why. So welcome to the future of attorneys in AI. What would my cousin Vinny say? Enough about me, Bonnie D in the house. Let's move to my guest bios. Nancy Schick. Nancy, I did the math this morning before the show. I polled the world, and I found out that since everybody met you last week on the show, there are only about 11.37 people in the world who don't remember you. I'm so sorry. So would you please refresh, Lisa, like that. All the rest of you have to start from scratch. Nancy, would you please refresh the memory of those 11 point something people and update them on who you are and what you do? Welcome back, Nancy. Yes, so I'm an employment attorney and mediator in New York City. Give me the whole bio. Come on, Nancy. Can't get away that simple. Okay, so I'm interested in uh, the AI and the impact it's going to have on the legal profession in part because my long-term partner is a computer programmer in AI and this is one of our nerdy conversations around the dinner table is where is AI going? How is it going to be used? And how are people going to freak out about it taking their jobs, et cetera, including lawyers? Do you think it will? What's your take? Yes or no? Well, there are definitely going to be jobs that will be eliminated, but I agree with what you, what ChatGPT told you is that we, we're not going to be replaced entirely. Not so those entirely, of you who no. don't like us, sorry, we're here to stay. <laughs> Nancy, your company is Third Ear. Could you just explain why you picked that name for what you do? So if you look in the English word heart, E-A-R is right there in the center. So your third ear is your heart, and it's all about compassionate listening. 
That's very clever. I don't know that I've asked you that in years. You and I have known each other for decades, and it's lovely to see you again. Thank you. Lisa Patterson, you're up next. Lisa, start from scratch. Who are you? What do you do? Why are you here? And welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be a newbie on your show. I'm a big fan. Um, I am the Program Director for Externships, Public Interest, and Access to Justice, which is a really long title, at the University at Buffalo School of Law. We're the only law school in the State University of New York or SUNY system. Um, I've only been in externships for a year, but we do field placements, which is where we put students right into offices to help them learn and then monitor them for the semester. Uh, but before that, for a quarter century, I was in career services. So I spent a lot of time preparing students for finding jobs and figuring out where they belong in the legal profession. Um, I'm passionate about AI because um, I know, Bonnie, you've talked about being an early programmer with punch cards. Yes. Um, I was a little bit after you on that. I, I ran an agency that where we typed people's handwritten papers on the first version of Macs, uh, a, a, you know, an, an agency that will not exist anymore and probably hasn't existed for 20 years now. Um, but from there to here, you know, we went from bulk mailings to emails to, you know, we went through getting Westlaw and what Lexis um, in law students' hands and wondering if books were ever going to, you know, go away. So it's really been exciting to see right at the beginning when students are learning to be lawyers, how uh, technology has really evolved in the time I've been involved in it. And it's one of the, my favorite parts of working with students. Thank you very much. You watched the show. You know about me. Thank you. That's I'm I'm very very flattered. I come from the the early key punch days, and back in those days, we were called programmer analysts, where we were given a problem. Or I used I was working for the community college division of the state of Oregon, living in Eugene for some reason, for several years. And and a man named Alan used to call me up, and he'd say, "Okay." get out a piece of legal paper, get out a pencil and a ruler, Bonnie, and draw a line on the left column. And Nancy, you haven't heard this, and a line across the top, and then make three columns down and four columns across, and put these labels on the columns across and down. He said, this is what you're going to program for us. This is the report we need. That's how I received my instructions. It was that simple. It was that complex. And I had to design a program. I was coding in COBOL at the time, design a program from scratch to accommodate everything they needed in terms of the output for the community college division of the whole state. It was fascinating times. And I still have some of my green bar paper, Lisa, and yeah. I still have my, I still have my COBOL handbook and I still have the, the core dumps and the printouts. It was so exciting. We loved it. We, those of us who went through that, we just loved it. So thank you. Welcome. Let's go to Phil Siegel. Phil, welcome. Let's start from scratch with you. Who are you and why are you here? Well, if someone had told me to build a program like that, I would have run screaming from the room, but I guess I didn't have any COBOL training. That sounds good for you to have embraced that exciting. enthusiastically. Thank you. Uh, I am a, I uh, was a journalist for almost 20 years um, in five countries. Uh, my last job before I became a lawyer was I was the finance editor at the Asian Wall Street Journal in Hong Kong, where I lived for nine years. But I also worked in Latin America and elsewhere in Asia. And then I went to law school uh, and discovered when I got out of law school that no New York City firm wanted a middle-aged first-year associate. And they were right not to want me because I wouldn't have put up with the nonsense and the 90-hour weeks. And so I, I started doing investigations for an investigations company because I needed a job. I had taken three years off work to go to law school, and only part of it was paid for by, by a fellowship. 
And so I started doing investigations and rapidly discovered this was the job for me because it involves the curiosity and the uh, multiple suppositions and possible outcomes that journalists deal with. It involves not having a badge or a subpoena when you have to find something out. And it involves, in my case, reading legal cases and securities filings and balance sheets and other financial documents. I'm just going to adjust my light. Hold on a sec. That's fine. That's fine. So it Absolutely. automatically goes on. It should go off automatically, but it goes on automatically, which is not very okay. green of this building. You're better now. Go ahead. Anyway, uh, so uh, it it turned out to be a great job for me. Uh, because these are all elements of the job and the, the, the dealing with millions and millions, an unlimited universe of, of facts and trying to figure out which ones are germane to this issue uh, means that you're fighting confirmation bias all the time. Uh, and yet you have to be able to uh, eliminate things that are not fruitful. It's kind of a Bayesian way of going about, okay, this seems good. I'll keep going on, on this. Uh, and it just, it's just a job that suits me. And it's it's never well. Sometimes it's dull, but it's usually not dull. And it's full of technology. And, and I'm convinced that you know today's AI is tomorrow's software. Just like Intuit, TurboTax, and the databases I use. So I I look at AI the way I look at all the different technology that is constantly coming at me. People always want to sell me new technology, and AI is another. ChatGPT is another one of those potential products. Thank you, Phil. Fascinating background, starting in law, middle, what you call middle age. I don't know. What I hope that it ends anymore. up being middle age. Let's hope so. <laughs> well, I was going to say that's, I, I that's get, a moving target for a I lot of people. My, I try and eat my vegetables and get my sleep, <laughs> and then it'll work. Anybody called you a renaissance man? You're doing no. so much? Okay, well, I no. won't then. I, I wouldn't dare. Question, quick question. I, and I think this is probably on the minds of listeners and viewers, is what you say investigative. Are you a PI? Is that part of what you do? Or uh, you sounds I'm like not, I'm not. No, I am. I'm a lawyer and it, I do a lot of what PIs do. But then I do not follow people. I do. I don't do any surveillance. I don't do any cybersecurity. I don't do any forensic accounting. I really use, with the exception of a couple of databases that that a law firm uh, can get me, um, I don't do anything that anyone else can't do. I compete with process servers, researchers. I look at public records. Um, and You just and, don't and code in COBOL, that's all. <laughs> right. I, don't, I hope someone like you already did that for me. I did. I did plenty of it. Lisa probably did her share in different languages. I did PL1 as well. When we got rid of the key punch, the card punch, we actually had a monitor, a terminal we could enter our code in, and that was in IBM 4341 and PL1 and spaghetti code. And anybody who remembers those days, you know what that is. Somebody got there and just messed the whole thing up, and I had to figure it out. Noah Fiedler, we're ready for you. Noah, welcome. Let's hear who you are. Go ahead. Well, thank you, Bonnie. I'm I'm the only uh, panelist you've got that's got a logo that gives me devil ears. <laughs> uh, and thank, thanks to Nance for, for inviting me and asking me to be part of the panel. I really appreciate it. I, I started practicing law in 1995 uh, and began as a commercial litigator and then moved fairly quickly into legal malpractice defense. And about 10 or 15 years ago, then moved into risk management. And uh, since then, I've, I spend most of my days, every day, counseling lawyers about uh, ethical risk and civil liability risk across the, from, you know, from Florida to Washington State and Hawaii, as a matter of fact. 
uh, to try and keep them out of either the disciplinary system or uh, the, uh, the civil litigation system unless they're representing somebody else. So that's, that's where I come uh, to my interest in this topic. Uh, the many of my clients, actually most of my clients, are are asking questions about: Can we use AI? How can we use AI? What does that mean for us? And importantly, if we use it, are there civil? Or is there an additional risk of civil liability? Is there additional risk of discipline? What are the safe ways to use AI? Uh, you know, if if there is one, and you know what what's going to happen next week and what's going to happen six months from now? How do I keep up with my competitors, and how do I ensure that I have a license to practice with, and that I have an insurance policy to protect my practice? There you go, intellectual property. And the question is: Is it artificial intellectual or is it human intellectual? And where does the intersection come? And the answer, no, as you pointed out, is we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know who will be protecting what, who will be allowed to say what, do what. I always mention at the top of the show that I use ChatGPT for my research. Nancy puts that in her bio. It says created with the help of ChatGPT. You put it right at the last line of of your bio that you sent me. So. It is. It is burgeoning. It is. Phil. I'm so at Noah. Is it scary for lawyers? In your opinion, just briefly, is it a an OMG or is it a well? We'll deal with it. What do you think? Every all all new technology is scary for lawyers. Uh, we are uh, by nature late adopters. We're risk averse for the most part. Uh, there there is a very small group that are going to be early adopters, but for the most part. Uh, we're just learning how to use email properly. It's not, it, this This is going to take a long time to sink in. You know, the p- part of that is where, you know, where the majority of lawyers practice. The majority of lawyers, about 90, maybe more than that, 90 to 95% practice in firms of 10 or less. Uh, well, while you will see, I think AI make uh, stronger gains in large firm, it's going to be a long time before it works its way down to small firm. Very interesting. Unless we used to call uh, people who did things outside the realm of the IT department and big companies rogue IT, they were creating programs, they were doing things that were really their boss didn't know what they were doing, but they thought it would help the company or help themselves. So we may see some rogue AI adopters. It's just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. The question is, what is it really doing? It's got a fixed database, ChatGPT. I think it closed at 2021. It doesn't search the internet. Uh, Nancy, I did it for a, a friend who's a, a undersea thriller novelist. He's a, a diver, and he writes wonderful treasure hunting types of novels. And I query chat GPT with his name. And it came up with a list of six books and I sent it to him on text and he said, well, I only wrote two of those, but that's really nice. So, and I asked it if it knew who I was, no clue. And then I gave it the name of this show and it said somebody else was the host and founder of this show. So it's trying, it's really trying. It's trying our patience a little bit too. Thank you all for the bios. I just texted Nancy and I said, what a group you brought me today. You are all so impressive. And I will say that I'm very honored that you're taking time to join me today. So thank you. You haven't said much yet, but I'm thanking you already. You're all brilliant and I appreciate it. Nancy, we love a panel of diverse backgrounds and that's what you brought me today. Quite a potpourri, if I can say that. Let's go to the part of the show where I've asked my guests to send me each a fictional quote from a movie or a TV character or a song lyric. And we've got quite a 
There's the word again, potpourri today. Nancy Schick sent me a quote from the song Moving to Montana by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. It was the last track on their 1973 studio album, Overnight Sensation, and it's one of the most famous and renowned compositions from Zappa. What's interesting about it, Nancy, you probably know this, it featured backing vocals by Tina Turner and the iCats in the middle and end sections. And the B side of the single was called I'm the Slime. I don't know why I found that out, but I thought it was interesting. It had an interesting structure. It had a pseudo ranch pronunciation to go with the theme of Montana and uh, something about a pony named Mighty Little. But what's interesting is the difficult part in the middle was hard for anybody to sing. So the Iquettes came up with something they thought would be good. Ike Turner was in the next studio and Tino went in and grabbed him and said, hey, you got to come in. Look what the girls and I came up with. We're singing this the way Frank wanted. And uh, he said, what is this? And I'll spell the word S-H blank T. And he went back in the studio. He had no interest whatsoever. So Nancy, I'm getting to it, my dear. The line you picked is as a riot. You have to explain it. It says, I might be moving to Montana soon just to raise me up a crop of dental floss. Oh, Nancy, where did you find this? And what does it have to do with our topic? Go ahead. So I chose it because, I one, I just think Frank Zappa worked with whatever he wanted to, right? And I, th and I thought that was relevant to the topic because, you know, as I mentioned in, when I introduced myself, a lot of attorneys are already kind of freaking out about AI. They're worried that, you know, just like every other profession, that they're going to be replaced. And I'm... You, as you know, I've been on your show enough, you know I'm kind of an optimist and I feel like, look, you just have to go searching for the opportunities and lean in to where you can do something very unique. And Frank Zappa really inspires me. Um, you know, all of his music, gone too soon. <laughs> Gone too soon. There's another one. Yes. Thank you very much. Very interesting. I love doing the research on these. I learned stuff I had no idea about. So thank you very much. Uh, Tina Turner probably has a thing or two to say about what happened at, at that at that session. Lisa Patterson has sent us a quote from a 1957 American romantic comedy film called Desk Set. Now, those of you who are old enough to know what a desk set was, it was usually the, the cup holder for your pens and pencils, or it was a fancy marble holder with the pens going into little fountain pen holders or whatever. It goes way, way back in time. Spencer Tracy played the character Richard Sumner, and let's see who else was in it. Catherine Hepburn, of course, was one of those movies. It was written by Phoebe Efron and Henry Efron, I think they have something to do with Nora, from the 1955 play by William Marchand. And let's just summarize, uh, Tracy, Richard Sumner, played by Spencer Tracy, is the inventor of a computer called E-M-E-R-A-C, Electromagnetic Memory and Research Arithmet Arithmetical Calculator, known as EMI. And they're going to put it into a big research library at the Federal Broadcasting Network in Midtown Manhattan. Well, the computer accidentally generates a statement that everybody is fired from the company, a pink slip, if you will, from everybody in the company, including the president and the CEO, whatever they called them back in the day. Well, they figure out that it was just in the middle of a merger and the computer messed up, but two companies were merging and they didn't want the competitors to know. So they installed the computer to help the research librarians and Catherine Hepburn was one 
to do their job better. And once they found that out, Spencer Tracy told her he was in love with her. And she said, no, you're in love with the computer. That's your first love. You're never going to love me. And so she forces some kind of a loop on the computer and he has to fix it. And then he says, I really love you. And he proposes to her and she ditches her boyfriend of seven years and she accepts the proposal. It was very romantic. Here's the line. <laughs> Lisa, you thought I'd never get to it. I love these movies. Lisa picked the following line from this wonderful movie. I don't think I've ever worked with so much efficiency before. There's something a little frightening about it too, like the power has gone out of our hands. Oh, Lisa, how did you find this? Talk to me. Well, this is one of my favorite movies. So thank you for being generous with me and letting me do a, a computer adjacent movie. Um, I have to say back when we all had Garmin's in our car, the freestanding GPS before it was on our phone, uh, we named ours Emmy after Emmerich. So it's been in my life a long time. Um, but I, I love the timestamp movies where we can look back in time and say, oh, they were so afraid that a computer was going to come in and ruin everything. Or, or it was before they had cell phones or, you know, this would have solved everything if they had just been able to text each other. Um, but I think the quote itself, even on its own, really encapsulates that feeling of, you know, to take that next step. This was huge for them. It was the first computerization of that company. Um, to be brave to take that step feels like, it, you know, you never know if it's that step that breaks everything. That's just going to ruin all of society. And so it's that, that really encapsulates that sense of, I think it's fascinating. I love it, but it's scaring me too. And, and I think that's where we are especially when it fires everybody and they yeah. think they're all out. So we're talking about the possibility of AI today in 2023, replacing attorneys and putting them out of work. And in those days, Emirac accidentally fired everybody and put them out of work. And that was 1957 movie. So do the math. That was 40, 65, 65, 66 years ago. OMG. Wow. Somebody knew what was coming down the pike. Thank you, Lisa. Good movie. Phil Siegel, you've gone to the cartoon side of the house with this. I love this. He picked uh, something from The Abominable Snow Rabbit, a six-minute 1961. We're almost back in the 50s there. Warner Brothers Looney Tunes theatrical cartoon starring Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. And the quote you picked is from Daffy Duck. I have to tell you, Phil, Daffy Duck animated cartoon character was created for Leon Schlesinger Productions by Tex Avery and, and Bob Clampett. But it was an anthropomorphic black duck. He appeared in Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies as a foil for Big Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig. Daffy Duck starred in 130 short films, Phil. The third most frequent character in Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies cartoons. Do you know who the number one and two were? I already mentioned them. Phil, you remember? Uh, well, Bugs Bunny has to be one of them. Right? Maybe Elmer Fudd? Nope, Perky Pig. Bugs Bunny was in 167 and Porky was in 153 and Daffy was in 130. Every Warner Brothers cartoon director put his own spin on what the Daffy character really was. So here is the line. The lead up to the line is poor Bugs, but any way you look at it, it's better he should suffer. And here's the line Phil picked. After all, it was me or him, and obviously it couldn't be me. It's a simple matter of logic. I'm not like other people. I can't stand pain. It hurts me. Wish I could do a proper Daffy Duck. I'm so sorry, Phil. If you want to do it, you're welcome to. But where'd you find this one, Phil? Well, this is this is one of my favorite lines from any book, movie, or song ever. 
And what does it have to do with AI? It has to do with people in any difficult situation. People can rationalize just about anything. Uh, and Daffy Duck is the person we all unfortunately are a lot of the time. Bugs Bunny is the person we'd like to be. Suave, debonair, never panics, is ingenious, gets out of gets out of jams, just sort of has a nice life. It's just kind of walks around and goes around the world, eats what he wants. He is, he is fun. And most of us are not that. Most of us are Daffy Duck, who's grasping and rationalizing and, you know, selfish. And uh, and so I, I think a lot of the time, you know, people, if, if someone uses ChatGPT at his law firm and, you know, the law firm uh, gets into huge trouble because ChatGPT invented a bunch of citations that no one checked and the law firm closes down, he'll have a justification. He'll say, well, what, what do you want me to do? You know, everybody, was like, the, the bar said it might be okay to you. There'll be some rationalization. He won't stand up and say, this is all my fault. I'm really sorry I took down this venerable 85-year-old law firm and put 8,000 people out of work. He won't do that. He'll be more like Daffy Duck. Well, it was, you know, what, what do you want? You know, uh, we, we needed the business. And uh, so that that's... That's why I think Daffy Duck is worth remembering in any situation, AI or other. Very, very clever and prescient. And we'll just leave that one alone, reeking of some headlines recently. Yeah, what did you want me to do? We needed the business. I will rest my case on that. Phil, thank you very much. I enjoyed looking that one up. Nice trivia. Noah Fiedler has picked a 1993, we're coming up in the world, more recent 1993 song by U2 from their album of the same name, Zoropa, Z-O-O-R-O-P-A. Anybody who doesn't know who U2 was, I'm going to tell you. An Irish rock band from Dublin formed back in 1976. Bono, lead vocal and rhythm guitar, The Edge guitar, keyboards, backing vocals, Adam Clayton, bass guitar, and Larry Mullen Jr. drums and percussion, post-punk, and then they have evolved their style over the years. Uh, this was the opening track. It combined two pieces of music, the first one in the studio, and the second one was a sound check from one of their concert tours, and it was discovered they were dreaming out loud. That was one of an advertising slogan that was used in this in this clip, I'm sorry, I hit my mic, in this clip and in some of their other things. Uh, in 1994, it won the Grammy for Best Alternative Music Album. I don't know if you knew that, Noah, but journalists loved it. They thought it was one of U2's most creative works. The band wasn't sure they really liked it. They had mixed feelings. I don't know why that was reported, but it was. So here's the line. Uncertainty can be a guiding light. I didn't attempt to sing it. Noah, would you like to? Not at all, and and I'm sure nobody would want to hear it. Uh, the The reason I picked this one, Bonnie, is because uncertainty is a way of life in legal practice, and in many ways, it's kind of the lifeblood of what we as lawyers do. You know, based on our experience, our training, our education, and our knowledge of of people in general, we do our best to predict what judges, juries, opposing parties, buyers, sellers will accept, what they'll agree to. Um, and ethics, uh, my kind of practice, ethics is no different. Um, we try, and, and when you apply ethics, they are the ethical rules that we follow to rapidly changing technology to, to brand new things like we're talking about today, um, we, get, we really get stretched to the limit. Uh, there, there are no rules, there are no laws that specifically address what AI means, what generative AI means, what it, what we can do, what we can't do. You know, the rules, the rules that we operate under, the rules of professional conduct, 
uh, were adopted in uh, the, the original model rules were adopted in 1983, which is before we, you know, we had the internet even. Uh, so they were not they were not written to deal with what we've got, and we're stuck trying to apply these old tools to the new work that we have to do to eliminate, if we can, uncertainty. And in some ways, uh, the issues that we face are not really new. There, we've had similar issues with other technology, with other innovation, all the way back, starting with your coding, email. You know, if you fast forward 20 or 30 years, we've got cryptocurrency. We've always had to deal with things like competence, supervision, independent judgment. Uh, so the, the issues are not new, but in other ways, generative AI could change absolutely everything. Uh, we've got new and novel instances as the technology evolves. It's put to different and more creative uses. Like Nance said, you know, everybody's going to be trying to find an opportunity, not everybody, but many are going to be trying to find an opportunity here. How can I uh, exploit this new technology to make my practice more profitable, to reach more potential clients, to help my clients in a more efficient way? And I can assure you that the drafters of the Rules of Professional Conduct uh, and the ethics opinions that, that interpret those rules had not considered at the time, could not foresee what our circumstances today are. And so we're left trying to um, guide people through this uncertain future. And it is uncertain day by day, isn't it? With these, new, I, I found a, a, an article the other day with the 18 reviews, deep in-depth art perspective reviews of 18 AI art generating programs. And I read every one and I tried several of the programs. I took a picture of me uh, with the background of my radio banner to see what it could do. Some of them will let you upload a picture and then embellish it or change it. I didn't know what I would look like with gold hair, silver hair, with purple hair, with uh, red glasses, with green glasses, with purple glasses, with a gold mic, with a silver mic. And it just kept playing and playing and playing. And I said, oh, I don't know who that is, but she sure looks cool. Uh, but it's interesting that all of this is just coming at us. That's why, Noah, I'm able to do week after week after week of AI and AI in education, AI in drones, AI in HR, AI in Nancy, workplace law and employee rights, AI in horror fiction, AI in music composers. What is it doing to our world or what is it letting us do to our world? Maybe that's the, the better phrase is what is it allowing us to do to our world? Because right now we're still in control right? We're deciding how to use it and if to use it. So thank you all for the quotes. I really, Nancy, you want to say something? Did I spark an idea? I want to move to the predictions now. I'm going to pick one from each of you. Nancy, I've already put it into the chat for you. Lisa, I've got one picked out for you next. Nancy says, large law firms will develop their own AI tools. That's a big deal, it sounds like to me. Nancy, take two to three minutes, unpack it. Anybody wants to comment, Phil or Lisa or Noah, just wiggle a little finger at me. Nancy, go ahead. Yeah, I'll be honest, I don't know if they're already doing it. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they're not tinkering with the idea. The longer a law firm's been around and the more data that they have, you know, they could train certain data sets to and train AI to pull certain information out. But I think it, one of the things that we're going to see is the limitations of it when large firms or large corporations, for that matter, start trying to develop their own in-house versions. Because it's in a lot of ways, what, the, what it's best used for is kind of creating templates that might give your own, give it your own voice and speed up the process. But 
from what I understand is it's not ready to do the thinking for us. Like you said, it will it will give a lot of bad information. It will make stuff up because all it's doing is predicting the sequence of words in a sentence and a paragraph. So, you know, people think that they're putting something in and it's going to somehow give good information back, but it's really just going to base it on the probability that the future of now will come in a sequence. Very well put, absolutely. And and I've noticed that every time I research a topic for a monologue on my show every week, it starts with the future of whatever I give it, the prompt. And Nancy, you taught me some interesting things last week about good and good and doing good prompts. It ends with the following sentence, overall, and then it repeats what I asked it to, and then it gives a summary of everything it did before. So it has, if you will, the executive summary at the top, and then the closing summary at the bottom. It is very pro forma, but I will tell you that uh, Noah and, and Phil, you'll get a kick out of this. If I ask it for a certain bunch of movie quotes and I'll look all this up. You know, I look up and I do the research and I can't find a particular character or the actor it said played that character. I'll go back to chat GPT and I'll say that was not the correct actor or that character wasn't in that movie and it will apologize to me. It's a canned apology. It will say, I know Phil rolling his eyes. It will say, I'm sorry if I caused you any confusion. You're right. It was Bob Smith who played Jill Jones or whatever it was in the movie and it will correct. Noah, you wanted to comment? Go ahead. I did. Yeah, I think I think Nance's I, I I think Nance Nance's prediction is accurate. Um, one of the one of the big ethical issues with with using ChatGPT or any generative AI product is where you get the database of information. Mm -hmm. And to lawyers, that screams confidentiality. As soon as you put in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, your client's information or the question into an outside system chances are you've reached rule 1.6, which is a rule of confidentiality, which applies to uh, information relating, quote, relating to the representation of a client in most states. Other states, some states have slightly different definitions. But the, the one of the biggest concerns, ethical concerns with the use of generative AI is confidential information. By keeping this, uh, keeping the system in-house and using a database in-house, Lawyers can overcome the confident uh, the confidentiality issue, and they can also overcome kind of this updating issue, which would be like a competence or an oversight issue. Uh, ChatGPT ends at 2021, which means that recent developments are not being taken into consideration. So, uh, to the extent that that large law firms have the the horsepower and the money to invest in this, I think Nance is absolutely right. Is uh, by keeping it in house, that's going to address a number of the concerns that exist at the moment. Thank you. Very interesting. Anybody else comment on that? Uh, Phil, go ahead. Just, just that the the quest the question of how big the database is is always an important one. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, LexisNexis uh, has newspaper articles, but if you actually look, LexisNexis only has articles in fourteen languages. So, you know, if you're looking at a Korean person, they don't have Korean newspapers on LexisNexis. It's of no use. If, you, if you're looking at someone who lives in Korea or lives here but is Korean and goes back and forth. So if you're, if you're a law firm and you're only using your own information internally and you're not mixing it with what's outside, uh, it's going to be different from saying we're, we're ChatGPT getting from everywhere. You know, if a law firm is only using its own data, it, it's not going to be maybe as, as effective as if they were able to combine their data with the outside data. 
Uh, so well, it's always a question of how big is the. There's always a little question mark next to any database you use, and it's worth clicking on that to see how broad the coverage is or how na- it's often very narrow, and people good don't point. know that. And and it also goes to who writes the algorithms for whatever we're using. What's the algorithmic, the built-in bias of the human? It started with a human somewhere. And when I did a show on AI and, and human novelists versus AI novelists, the question of copyrights came up. And I read something about a copyright cannot go to an algorithm or a program, but it can go to the human who wrote it. So whoever wrote the AI algorithm would get credit for the copyright. And with permission, they could give it to the human who used a clip or a piece of that AI-generated text for their novel. Very complicated. Lisa, you want to make a comment, please. Uh, So where I'm coming from, from the access to justice side, is just looking at the resources that need to be poured into these technologies. And they're all going to be behind a huge paywall at some point. There's going to be uh, providers making money off of all of this. And so do we have smaller firms? Do we have not-for-profits who are going to be left out in the cold? You know, there are some statistics that say 92% of people who need a lawyer never get one. Um, So we are already having a problem with people having access to legal help. And so will the people who aren't big firms or aren't very richly resourced have access to the same tools? And then there was my cousin Vinny. And they couldn't afford, I know, my cousin Vinny. Let's move on. Lisa, I have picked prediction number one from you. Take about two minutes and we'll quickly go around the table. Phil, I'll get one for you and I'll put it in the chat soon and then Noah as well. So Lisa says, differentiating between cheating and efficiency, and she puts quotes around those, cheating in legal education. With the increasing use of AI and chat GPT in the legal profession, legal education will eventually find a way to integrate AI tools into the curriculum in a way that does not impede students' ability to develop skills, but instead prepares them for the future of legal practice where AI is becoming an essential tool as I said in the beginning, to analyze legal cases, do research, and even predict outcomes. Lisa, talk to us. Take about two and a half minutes, and then we'll quickly go around. Go ahead. So the crux of this is figuring out what humans have to do that only humans can do and what the role of AI as a machine is going to be in the legal profession and really everywhere, but we're talking about lawyers today. There's no question that teaching students to use AI will have to be um, utilized. It's already happening. So the trick is finding the sweet spot where the students have to practice the initial skills and aren't using chat chat GPT to cut a corner to write something for them um, and doing their own writing. But at the same time, um, for example, one of the things that we all use chat GPT for, I'm sure, is to do a draft. So if I say, write me a draft of an email that I want to send to someone, I have the skills and I've been trained to know if that was good writing that it gave me and how I want to change it. If I'm a student, I'm still in a place where I'm learning that skill. So if I let them use GPT to generate something and turn it in, they haven't discovered that for themselves. So that sweet spot is sort of where legal education is right now. And we're seeing things like um, the the professors who are um, banning GPT Um, who are taking their final exams, which is the season right now, they're going into exams that used to be take home that are now in person so that people can't, you know, look up, you know, their answers uh, and they have to, they're very locked down in what they can write. So it's really just coming from them. And this is the first semester of it, right? So we're just starting to see how that seesaw is is working. Um, But at the end of the day, it comes down to um, making sure that students have the underlying skills and it goes back to what we were talking about with the bar. So the bar 
you know, it's just a test that tests things. You could have a test that says, um, you know, write the ABCs for me. And that's great. You know, a machine can tell me the ABCs, but you also need to tell a kindergartner you need to learn your ABCs and test a kindergartner on whether they know their ABCs. So just because a machine can do it doesn't mean that the students don't have to learn it and be tested on it as well. So that's where we are teaching them um, without having them use it as a crutch. Thank you. Any comments from anybody? Noah, please. Yeah, I, I I think that that's that's right on the money. the The issue from an ethics perspective is uh, Rule one point one requires the lawyers be competent to do what they do, and uh, there's a comment to that rule that's been adopted by thirty thirty five states now that says that 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 rule of competence includes being competent or knowledgeable in technology, and that oh. that I think is going to you know applies directly to what we're talking about here, and it it. So I, at some level, and I'm not sure exactly where we are yet, which takes me back to uncertainty, but at some level, the comment to 1.1 requires that lawyers consider and at least be familiar with the possible benefits and the risks of using generative AI in their practice. Uh, we don't, we, I, I don't think there's enough knowledge about how it can be used, how it should be used, all of those things right now, because it's, it still is, as everybody's pointed out, um, you know, there, there are problems with its reliability, with making things up, with hallucinating, those sorts of things. Um, but at some point, we're going to reach this critical mass of knowledge where uh, maybe use of AI is, uh, becomes the standard of care, becomes expected. Um, it's where it's not cutting edge anymore. And at that point, mm -hmm. then lawyers are going to be required to understand how to use it, why they want to use it, why they don't use it, and make that, make that reasoned decision. Hopefully, law schools are going to react to that sooner rather than later, although I'm not crossing my fingers, um, and, and get ahead of it. Uh, and and I, so I think, we, you know, that, that, that uh, prediction is, is right on. Noah, I want to move directly into Phil's prediction number one. I think we got a segue without Noah even realizing it. So, Phil, I'm going to read your prediction now, and let's keep this conversation going. Phil says, before too long, a lawyer will be disbarred for submitting AI-generated material in a brief that turns out to be damaging to the client because it's flat-out wrong and the lawyer did not check. Phil, strong words. Go ahead. Talk to us. Uh, a lawyer I know here in New York, an employment litigator, he put this on LinkedIn, and I did a blog about it, said that a, a client sent him some sites. Uh, he said, this would be very good for our case. And he started researching these citations, and he thought he had developed dyslexia overnight because he couldn't find any of the citations. He kept thinking, I'm typing them in incorrectly. And it turned out that, that ChatGPT, well, he said, the, he said to the client, where did you get these? Well, I can't find them. And he said, well, ChatGPT gave them to me. ChatGPT made them up. They were invented. They didn't exist. And to Noah's point earlier that 97% of lawyers or solos, or work in small firms, uh, you know. And when you look at, I'm on these ethics uh, bulletin boards, and I see what people get disbarred and disciplined for every day. And it's just astounding what lawyers keep doing. They know it; they have to know it's wrong to forge a judge's signature. You know, things like that. So they're going to be, and and you know, I mean, there are people that quote Wikipedia all the time. We know Wikipedia is not terribly reliable a lot of the time. It's a good predictor of what you might find, and then you have to check. So I think at some point, given how 
uh, risky some lawyers are, uh, risk-taking some lawyers are with stuff we know they, sh- they should know better not to do. Um, someone's going to someone's gonna come up with a, there'll be a malpractice case somewhere soon where someone says, well, I, it seemed right. It seemed, you know, Justice Holmes said this. I put it in and, and some legal clerk's going to catch it and say, no, it's not right. Or, or, uh, or the other side will catch it. Phil, you mean Wikipedia is not always right? I just gave them another $5 contribution because I use them so often. They're they, hitting up users from... <laughs> I've learned so much about the movies through, through Wikipedia. Wikipedia but... is a tool like a hammer. You can build a house with a hammer, but lots of other tools. Uh, you need Wikipedia and Google when you're researching things. Mm-hmm. But I think of Wikipedia and Google as places that tell me where I want to go in order to find out Good what's point. going on, a better edited source. And quoteinvestigator.com invest, quote is another great place to find who really said the, what. Wikipedia and, and, and uh, Google are like reference librarians who say, yep. go over there and look at the yearbook of the state of Maine there you go. to know how many lobsters are caught in Maine. Thank okay. you. I'm ready for lobster now. I want to go. Noah, you had a quick comment, and then we're going to go to one of your predictions. Noah, we're almost out of time. We have about eight minutes left. Go ahead. Uh, just quickly, what Phil said is, uh, you know, brings up this rule of competence again. Um, knowing, knowing what we and I and I've heard the exact same comment, Phil, from uh, probably two hands full of lawyers, where they check the sites. They're completely made up. The term of art, I think, is hallucinating. A court would call it falsifying information, and you better believe that opposing counsel is going to catch it. And when they do, then you're going to get sanctioned by the court, and you're going to may get hauled in front of the the disciplinary committee. I would be. Unless it happens over and over and over again, I'd be really surprised to see somebody disbarred. I think more likely you're going to see something like a public reprimand. Mm, interesting. I want to segue into a prediction from you, Noah, and I'm going to just read the middle part of it because it's long and I think this is where we need to go. You say it will take at least five years for regulators to balance the risk of loss and liability with the potential benefit of widespread use of generative AI to accomplish more repetitive common and fairly standard legal work. Three minutes, Noah, then a quick round, and then we've got to close. Go ahead, Noah. Uh, I, I guess 50, uh, five years, and here's why. Um, when I started legal practice in 1995, email was just coming into um, kind of general use, and we had one email address for the entire firm because everybody was scared about what might happen. <laughs> in the last... So that was 1995. Just in the last three or four years, we've had uh, ethics opinions about the use of copy all or reply all Mm -hmm. in email use. It's taken taken our our industry that long to come up with definitive answers, although although they they vary. One one, one state will say one thing, one state will say another, just to the use of carbon copy, you know, copy all, reply all. Same thing with crypto. Crypto started, you know, how many years ago? The the original ethics opinion was out of Nebraska, and it sat for about two or three years, despite being widely panned, before somebody else came out with a, a more, I think, usable or reasonable ethics opinion. It just takes a while for um, for the ethics authorities out there to react and to and 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 in fairness. Uh, it takes time to deeply consider how this new technology is being used, what the problems are with it. Uh, to, to jump out at the front like Nebraska did on crypto is to risk a lot. Uh, you can get it wrong, which I think Nebraska did. Um, so I, I think it's going to take a while before we get some, at least five years, before we get some direct answers about 
um, you know, what are the potential costs, what are the potential benefits, and where is the line in between them so we can balance on that fulcrum in the middle? Very, very interesting. Any quick comments? We've got about four minutes left, and I have a couple of closing remarks. Phil, go ahead briefly. Just a quick one on the bar exam example. Uh, yeah. You know, if you have a if you have a lawyer who just passed the bar exam yesterday, and you let him handle a matter for a client by himself, uh, that's not that's that's not competent representation. You know, a lot of subjects aren't even on the bar exam. Immigration law, I think, I think tax law is lots and lots of subjects are not even on the bar exam. So just it's it's great that ChatGPT passed the bar exam. That doesn't mean ChatGPT can pa practice law. There you go. I, yep, the experiment may have been just an academic experiment on can it does it know enough for that particular bar exam, but not can it practice law. There isn't. There's no causal link big between. Difference. Yeah, big difference. Nancy, go ahead. Yeah, so I think I'm just going to piggyback on what Phil is saying. I think it's a nice way to, to remind people that ChatGPT, again, is a tool. And I see it as being like having a very, very efficient assistant that you still have to supervise. Right. And I think that's where some people are not doing that. They think it's smarter than they are, and it might be, <laughs> but but only on certain things. Only on certain things. Lisa, any comments on that one? Yeah, there's a, been a real shift in legal education towards more skills-based education. There's a next-gen bar coming out in 2026 um, that is going to be testing more on exercises that are skill-based as opposed to memorized uh, multiple choices. Uh, plus, the, the ABA is, is requiring us to do more programming on professional development um, and identity formation, which includes ethics and communication and the soft skills that lawyers need um, that really may be more important than whether they memorized, you know, civil procedure rules. So I think even before anyone knew what ChatGPT was, the legal profession on the educational side was moving towards emphasizing the more human side of law, which will come in handy because that's really where our toehold is at this point is staking our claim for where our human traits are needed in the world of uh, having an AI as a tool. Well, if you all want to see the human side of lawyers and courts in a very humorous way, the new version of Night Court is on, I believe, NBC TV. And the girl, uh, Roush, Bernadette, uh, her first name, Melissa Roush, who played Bernadette on, um, whatchamacallit, uh, you know. Uh, the Big Bang uh, Theory. Big Bang Theory. I was thinking of the Black Hole Theory. Big Bang Theory, she is the judge. She's about four foot nine. And uh, they brought back Dan Fielding, who is uh, John Larroquette. And the, the size difference, but it's, it's the way a court supposedly works in New York City. And it's a right with the lawyers and the public defenders and their personalities and the bailiff. It's just a fun way to look at it, but no basis in reality whatsoever. Nancy Schick, everybody, would you please give Nancy a round of applause? Join me. Nancy, you outdid, last week was great, but you outdid yourself today. You brought such talent and such thought-provoking professionals to the panel, and I appreciate it. Lisa, wonderful to meet you. Phil, I still think you're a Renaissance man, but don't tell anybody. Noah, 
so many citations of, of, of legal precedents and numbers and laws. I, I feel like I just got a quick training course in understanding that stuff. And Nancy, always wonderful. So I have a, and a shout out to my engineer, Andrew, who always greets everybody with, how are you today? Just like my cousin Vinny, and he likes the movie too. So I want you all, and stick around, we're going to take pictures after just for a couple minutes. I want you all to raise your finger as that we didn't rehearse this. Put your finger up like you're going to say, with me, no, no, no. On the count of three, when I, Phil, come on, put that finger up. Phil, there you go. On the count of three, people say the future is already here. And our answer is one, two, three. No, no, no. One, two, three. No, 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 no. 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 That's because that was yesterday's future or it was the future about two seconds ago and it's gone now. It's in the past and we're all going to do our best. I know it to make this a better future whenever it gets here. Bonnie D signing off, don't go away. Bye LinkedIn, bye Facebook, bye Voice America Business. Thank you for joining us for Technology Revolution, the future of now. Mark your calendar to join host Bonnie D. Graham every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel to hear how technology is impacting your future now.